Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Ever since most people became aware of psychedelic drugs, they have been regarded with suspicion. The party drugs of 1960s-era hippies. They've also been illegal. But gradually, their use and effectiveness in treating everything from mood, anxiety, and substance abuse disorders to PTSD is becoming more widely recognized. Today, the Food and Drug Administration says psychedelics show initial promise as potential treatment modalities and, in fact, The FDA has called this a breakthrough therapy. Some military veterans have long supported the use of drugs like psilocybin, found in magic mushrooms, and MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, as a way to relieve post-traumatic stress. As far back as 1933, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, achieved his abstinence as the result of a psychedelic experience. So what's the science behind all of this? How can these drugs, which are mind-altering in the moment, have positive, lasting effects? How are they being tested and used in therapeutic settings? What might be their future in curing a host of conditions that have plagued people for years? We look into that this hour with the help of several experts. Dr. Cynthia Kuhn is professor of pharmacology and cancer biology at the Duke University School of Medicine. Thank you for being here. Dr. Robert McClure is also with us. He's an MD and associate professor and director of the UNC Interventional Psychiatric Service. Juliana Mercer joins us. She's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and director of public policy for Healing Breakthrough, an organization that, among other things, is working to transform veteran PTSD treatment using MDMA-assisted therapy. And Daniel De La Cruz is a clinical social worker and co-founder of Cahoba. That's an integrative healing center with licensed therapists providing psychedelic-assisted therapy, or at least they will be when it becomes completely legal. Thank you all for being here. We, we, we appreciate it. Dr. McClure, I'm going to begin with you. I, I mentioned a moment ago that the founder of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, said that his alcohol addiction was cured not by a 12-step program, but in fact by psychedelic drugs. And in the 1950s, he helped persuade the U.S. government to fund six trials, which revealed that just one or two LSD doses doubled the positive outcome of traditional abstinence-based programs. So given that and some other things that we'll talk about, what has taken so long for the research and the medical communities to recognize the potential or to persuade the government to get out of the way? Mike, that's that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I think the place to start is that um, um, basically these uh, substances like MDMA and psilocybin uh, and others are basically on schedule one. The FDA, you know, regulates them more carefully than any other drugs uh, or any other medications. So to do research, you know, on with psilocybin or MDMA requires, you know, a great deal of effort. And um, uh, there are a lot of regulatory uh, steps that have to be completed before you can actually do do a study 
But some um, of these drugs have been around for literally centuries, others since the early 20th century and obviously the 1950s, yeah. the LSD thing and, and Dr. Timothy Leary yeah. and, and other things that you folks have been working on. Do they not listen to the medical community? Um, I'm sorry, does the medical community not listen to? No, does to... the government, does the government not listen to the medical oh, community and I the see. research community? Well, I, I think, um, I think we can say yes to that um, over the past five years, because I think that federal government, the FDA in particular, you know, has identified psychedelics as, as a very promising breakthrough treatment. And um, in addition, you know, they've taken great interest and in, developed um, some very straightforward guidelines as to the kind of questions that we need to answer um, with research studies uh, in psychedelics. So, Dr. Kuhn, uh, you, you work with these in a, uh, in a research or a pharmacological uh, way. D define psychedelics. Which drugs are we talking about, and how many different drugs fall into that category? <laughs> Probably hundreds. Um, the three main groups of drugs that we're talking about now really are only sort of tangentially related to each other. Classical psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin are um, described vaguely as drugs that cause changes in perception, mood, and thinking, um, ranging from at low doses to a wonderful, blissful sense that you understand everything to a more tense state in which you're really perceiving things that aren't really there. The other two major drugs and the ones that are the closest to clinical approval aren't classic psychedelics. One is ketamine, which has been um, anesthetic for decades and decades. I used it in my laboratory all the time um, for animal surgeries. And the other is MDMA, or methylene dioxymethamphetamine, drug that I've worked on in animal research, which is not exactly psychedelic. You don't get, the even at higher doses, these extreme experiences of um, per perceptions of things that aren't there, but something that the experts like to call an empathogen or intactogen, something that improves your feeling of being socially connected. And this is really probably key to its clinical utility, which the clinicians can talk about. I wanted to add one issue too. I am a boomer. So I am the generation that ruined clinical research for LSD. <laughs> I was interested, it, it is also what motiva has motivated my lifetime of research into how drugs affect the brain. That's why I went to graduate school. And um, although in the early, in 1970, they made all of these drugs schedule one in which you could not do research without uh, a particular license, made it impossible to study it in people. I've been able to do animal research on this for my whole career. I have to have a license from the DEA. They want to make sure that my LSD or whatever MDMA is in a safe, all locked up, which is completely fair. And Although there, and I think one of the reasons why now is that there have been decades of research by people like me and people who are far more deeply embedded in this research than I am, decades of research since the 70s. A great deal has been learned over that time about exactly where they work, the, the mechanism by which they work. Um, there was research going on in other countries, especially Switzerland, where they are the real forerunners of human research on psychedelics. And I think really what blew it open was ketamine, because here was a drug that was widely approved. I looked this up. The first paper 
um, occurred in 2000, in which they found, for much to everyone's surprise, that a single dose of ketamine would cause a long-lasting relief of depression in people who are drug resistant. And this, I th I, th this is when I started paying new attention to it. And I think it blew open the possibility. It is not a benign drug. It, it, it makes you feel like you're outside of yourself and very weird. It has to be used in a supervised way. But the fact that it saved people's lives um, from potential suicide was not lost on anybody. I want to come back to something you said a second ago, that you're a boomer and you're the one that ruined LSD for everybody. And I guess that dates back to Timothy Leary and what was it, tune in, mm -hmm. drop out or whatever it was that he said. Uh, but then there are drugs like MDMA and, and, and uh, psilocybin. Psilocybin comes from magic mushrooms, MDMA, MDMA. MDMA is also known as ecstasy. These are party drugs. Is that part of the problem that they have been Absolutely. used illicitly? Absolutely. And that has been one of the big concerns of the FDA because they need to uh, um, be sure that a drug can be used safely and used unsafely, for example, as in a recreational way, you can harm yourself. Um, you can harm yourself because you think you're having an experience that's not really there and do something uncharacteristic. You can die from MDMA if you take a great big, huge dose of it. Doesn't happen at all in the clinical trials, but there were very realistic concerns about toxicity of these drugs being used in an unregulated way. I think probably amongst all of them, there's the least bad press, if you will, about psilocybin because it's fairly benign compared to ketamine or compared to LSD or compared to MDMA. But there were, yes, there were these concerns. So We've been all working in the background trying to figure out how they work. I was most interested in what the toxicity of MDMA was, not its potential clinical benefit, but learned a lot about how it worked in the process. So, Dr. McClure, do we know precisely what's going on in the brain when you take these drugs, either in a clinical <laughs> setting or in a recreational setting? And, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll, 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 we will confine ourselves to the clinical setting for the purposes of this conversation. But what's going on? Well, sure. Um, well, I'm really glad that Cynthia brought up ketamine, uh, because ketamine really has been uh, kind of a breakthrough uh, in, in this area. When I started my uh, research training uh, in uh, 20 years ago, uh, ketamine was thought to be a pharmacologic model for psychosis. So the, the fact that it turned out to be a very effective antidepressant um, and uh, a, a way to reverse suicidal thoughts was a big surprise and uh, a big eye-opener for, for many, many people in the field. But just to get back to your question directly, with ketamine, um, you know, we know that it binds uh, glutamate receptors in the brain, which is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in, in, in the brain, the human brain. So we know the sites where it's acting, and we certainly know, you know, we can observe the, the um, dissociative effects um, side effects of, of ketamine. Um, uh, Daniel, uh, you're familiar with all three of the drugs that we're going to be talking about principally today, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. In your mind, uh, what sets them apart from each other? Why would you use one in a clinical, clinical setting over another? Yeah, um, I think in a clinical setting, um, for example, MDMA is really well suited to treat trauma specifically. Um, people with PTSD have increased fear and anxiety. They have difficulty revisiting traumatic memories. 
Sometimes they can have flashbacks and nightmares. And MDMA is uniquely suited to treat trauma in the way that it reduces activity in the amygdala, which is where we process fear and anxiety. It increases our memory recollection. Um, some of the clients that we work with have really difficult times engaging with traumatic memories. It can take 20 or 30 therapy sessions just to get to somebody to be able to um, you know, engage with a memory that was really difficult for them. And so under the effects of MDMA, it really can allow for reprocessing of traumatic memories. Um, they can stay really emotionally engaged with um, the material that's coming up. Um, and uh, we're hoping that um, when MDMA becomes legal, we'll be able to provide that in our office. Um, I primarily work with trauma and PTSD. Um, I, I'll say that I'm new to ketamine. I just finished my ketamine training in December and engaged in a ketamine experiential on Friday as part of my training. So um, I'm still wrapping my head around how I can use it in our own practice, which is something we're hoping to get off the ground in the next two to three months. Um, but from the literature, it seems that it's really, really great at treatment-resistant depression um, and reducing um, suicidal thoughts specifically. I mean, even with a single dose or two doses, people can have interruptions of um, really, really heavy suicidal ideation. Um, Psilocybin is also looking um, to be really useful at treating depression. Um, I think psilocybin really enhances creativity. Um, it can enhance our ability to make meaning. What we know is what people with anxiety and depression um, can have their ability to make meaning interrupted. Um, and under the effects of psilocybin, um, that enhanced ability to make meaning um, is useful in the therapeutic process. What we're doing in therapy is we're exploring our minds and all of these tools, all of these medicines are tools to explore our minds, maybe from different vantage points. I know that the MDMA is being advocated by people uh, working with veterans because of PTSD, which you just kind of alluded to, that it's affected with trauma. And when we come back, we'll ask Juliana Mercer about that. But we have to come. We're coming to a break. So it's unfair to ask the question uh, until after the break. Right now, as a matter of fact, it's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about psychedelic drugs and their... Uh, application to therapy, uh, mental health therapy, and when and where that may start happening on a regular basis. So we have uh, a pharmacologist with us, Dr. Cynthia Kuhn, professor of pharmacology and cancer biology at the Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Robert McClure is a medical doctor, associate professor and director of UNC's Interventional Psychiatry Service. Juliana Mercer is with us, a veteran with the United States Marine Corps and director of public policy for Healing Breakthrough, and Daniel De La Cruz, a clinical social worker and co-founder of an organization which we'll talk about in a moment called Cohoba and exactly what they're preparing to do when things become okay for them to do it, meaning the laws change. Uh, talk about, Julianne, we're going to talk about your personal experience with some of these drugs in a moment, but uh, as well as your advocacy for veterans. But do you advocate for all of the drugs we're talking about in your work with veterans, or is it primarily uh, MDMA? So 
personally, um, I've I've helped veterans connect to most of the substances that we're talking about, and I've seen really great results. Um, my my nine to five work is in DC, working on specifically getting MDMA assisted therapy into the VA system, and the reason for that is because MDMA is the first of these novel treatments to be um, on the path to FDA approval. Um, just last week, the FDA approved uh, the new drug application for MDMA, and the FDA actually allowed for fast tracking of that application. And we're expecting MDMA to be medically approved by the FDA in August of this year. So it's the tip of the spear, and it's the first of these treatments that's going to be actually available. And the efficacy is really exciting. Um, we have a veteran suicide epidemic. We're losing over 6,000 veterans a year. And we haven't found anything to make a dent in that. MDMA-assisted therapy, so MDMA in combination with therapy, is 71% effective in eliminating the PTSD diagnosis. And, so you can imagine we're really excited about that. And yet the FDA in 2018 granted psilocybin breakthrough therapy status, whatever that means, for depression. Uh, why is MDA, MDMA going to be the first one approved? Uh, so MDMA has been being studied for quite some time now. Um, Lycos, formerly MAPS, um, a public benefit corporation, was studying MDMA. It's been funded by philanthropic dollars. This is the first medication that's gone through the FDA process without a big pharmaceutical behind it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But MDMA was uh, granted breakthrough therapy status in 2017, and that's fast tracking um, with the FDA. So psilocybin was granted the, F the breakthrough therapy status a couple years later. So they are, they've just started their phase three clinical trials, which means we have, I'm guessing three to five years before that's going to be um, FDA approved. We're talking about any of these psychedelic drugs, some believe that what's happening is they're increasing your psychological flexibility allowing you to change or alter patterns in your brain that have been set by trauma or just you're set, everybody has are, is kind of set in their ways, but this allows you to see the world and yourself and yourself in the world in a different way. Dr. Kim, would you agree with that? I mean, is that why they work in addressing some of these mental health disorders? Uh, you asked a really key question, and there's a complicated answer. I'll give the simple version. I agree. Yes, that's probably why. The big, ex the big mystery is if you need the psychedelic experience or not. For MDMA, it's quite different because MDMA isn't a lot about a lot of introspection. It's about working with a therapist, and there, it's a little bit clearer that the kind of increased closeness to others and exception of input can really facilitate therapy. And that's what is the way that MDMA therapy is designed. For the psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, it's still an object of controversy. There's two camps. There's people who say you must have this experience and it is key part to wellness. Others would love to see a drug that fixed your brain, if you will, um, and cause the same changes in how the cortex and the brain works without that experience because it would be much easier to deliver. A huge impediment to delivery right now is that you have to have supervision by a professional because it's 
a very intense experience and you want people to be safe. And so people in my field are working hard to try to understand how these molecules might be tweaked. And yet we could tweak them in rats and we don't know what a rat is thinking. So ultimately what matters is what people think when you when you do this. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process. So we're going to talk about all these drugs individually. And psilocybin, Dr. McCure, uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is said to have the potential to treat a lot of different mental health conditions, including eating disorders and obsessive-compulsive uh, disorder, anxiety, chronic pain, plus substance abuse disorders and the depression experienced by people that have had life-threatening cancer diagnoses. How long have we recognized all of these different uh, results from this kind of therapy, and how have we done it, given the fact that access to these drugs, even by clinicians, is difficult? You know, Mike, it's quite a story, and there have been some very dedicated uh, researchers uh, around the world who, who've done very careful and really groundbreaking research uh, into uh, medic into medications like psilocybin and MDMA. Um, Juliana mentioned that MAPS, you know, has really launched and uh, the studies for um, MDMA treatment of uh, PTSD. Um, MAPS has funded two large studies that replicate the same finding that uh, it's effective at reducing symptoms of PTSD. Similarly, um, Groups in London, like Robin Carhart Harris and uh, uh, people at um, Johns, Johns Hopkins have carefully moved uh, this field forward by um, demonstrating that uh, use of a psychedelic with psychological support or with assisted therapy um, uh, can be both safe and effective. I think that it's been done uh, primarily in a very safe and cautious fashion, and that's why things have moved forward as they have. So, Daniel, your organization, COHOBA, C-O-H-O-B-A, has licensed clinicians who have received training in psychedelic therapy, but it's not legal yet in North Carolina to use that training in conjunction with psychedelic drugs. So, how does this work at your organization? What have you been focusing on, just getting people ready to use these drugs in clini clinical settings? Yes, so the services that we offer at Cohoba um, take a three-pronged approach. The first prong is we offer therapeutic services such as integration therapy and massage therapy. And what I mean by integration therapy is that despite the fact that we can't give you the psychedelics, there are people who are just doing this on their own. They're traveling to Peru for ayahuasca experiences or they're going to Jamaica for psilocybin experiences. And then they're returning to Charlotte and they're wondering, who do I talk to about what I just experienced? And so even though we can't provide you with the medicine, our therapists are trained to understand what it was that you just went through. And okay. the therapy I, component of it is as important as um, the medicine itself. I read yesterday that um, in, North, in North, and I don't understand this, and maybe this is wrong, but I read yesterday that in North Carolina, psychedelic drugs are not a legal treatment option, but guided psychedelic experiences are available in some setting through the use of so-called psychedelic guides who are not necessarily mental health professionals. Is that accurate? And if so, 
What are we talking about here? Explain the difference. Um, yeah, so outside of the therapeutic setting, people are seeking these medicines out. They're seeking out people who are not giving them the medicine. They're buying it on their own, and then they're sitting with them and holding space for them. Um, that's not a service that we provide at Cohova. Um, we don't um, do trip sitting at all. However, we do provide harm reduction services such as educational workshops. We teach people how to be safe around these. Ideally, we would love for people to experience this in a therapeutic setting, but we also understand the reality is that people are suffering. They're seeing documentaries on Netflix, they're reading books about it, and some of them don't have three or five years to wait for these treatments. And so when they seek it out on their own, we want to make sure that we still provide them with the information to be safe around this. I think that brings us, Dr. Kuhn, to uh, your how you gained appreciation for some of these psychedelics because you've done <laughs> what you what you've done some things with cancer patients. Talk about how it's used for and, and its effect on what you've witnessed with cancer patients. Actually, despite the fact that I'm in a department of pharmacology and cancer biology, I'm not a clinician. I don't treat patients. Okay, <laughs> and but I will tell you that. Um, the other land-breaking finding that got my attention as a basic researcher was from Roland Griffiths in the Psychedelic Center at Johns Hopkins, where he published shockingly effective data of a single psilocybin trial in patients who had life-threatening cancer, who were depressed and anxious because they had this terrible diagnosis. And I am the um, protector of good data. I try to teach my students to look for rigorous data, and it had been not easy to find in the psychedelic research world, in, in the clinical psychedelic research world. And this was powerful data of significant efficacy that was very well conducted. It was rigorously analyzed. It was published in a peer-reviewed journal. And it really got, I know Roland, I knew Roland, and I, it really got my attention. And that's really what got me paying close attention to both the clinical developments and, and the basic science developments that I was a little bit more aware of. So I can uh, attest to the at least the reported results in these patients. Rob may know more about this than I do. Rob, doctor? Well, <laughs> uh, I would just, uh, Cynthia's correct. Ron Griffiths uh, and colleagues and their work in um, relieving distress, anxiety, and depression in, in people, patients with terminal cancer was really a breakthrough. It, it led to the um, you know, FDA, um, uh, the FDA assigning psilocybin breakthrough status. Um, it, it's it was it's very effective um, in that in that population. So, of all the drugs that we've been talking about, well, we have not, we haven't really talked about LSD, and I don't think there's a reason to at the moment. But MDMA, uh, psilocybin, mm -hmm. ketamine, ketamine. Is the one that's legal, if I'm, uh, if I have this right, Daniel. Uh, it's been called in in the popular culture PCP or angel dust. It's legal in North Carolina for approved clinicians. It's not. You're, so you're, Dr. Kuhn is saying no, it's not. It's like PCP. It isn't PCP. Okay. That's it works PCP. in it works in the same way. However, um, Rob described it really well before when he said it it blocks the um, NMDA receptor for the glutamate. 
neurotransmitter, but it's not exactly the same molecule. But nevertheless, the rest of what you're saying is right. Okay, so the, the legal use of, ket- of the legal substance ketamine is approved in North Carolina for clinicians to use as a treatment for depression, PTSD, and of course as an anesthesia, which is what it was developed for. So are you, Daniel, involved in, in using this in a clinical setting with folks who come to you? Or, and, and, and if so, why only ketamine of all these drugs? Um, we're currently not providing it. All of our clinicians, as of December, finished their ketamine-assisted therapy training. Um, and so our goal is to be able to provide the services, um, hopefully, by the summer. Um, uh, well, then, Dr. McClure, why only ketamine? Why is it the only one that's been legalized? Oh, <clears throat> well, well, ketamine was uh, approved by the FDA as an anesthetic uh, right. in the 1950s, and it's been used as an anesthetic since then. But it wasn't until uh, about 20 years ago uh, when uh, investigators at NIMH and at Yale um, observed if you, if you give an infusion of ketamine, um, half, half of an anesthetic dose over 40 minutes, that it reduced um, uh, depressive symptoms and, and suicidality. So that's For how the main long? reason. That, For how long? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, I, I think that there's good evidence that um, a single infusion of ketamine or a single esketamine treatment uh, can have long-lasting effects, but but what our observations are is with with esketamine patients is that there's a group of patients who the positive effects really last for only seven to seven days, uh, seven to fourteen days. So, Juliana, you work with veterans. You're an advocate for some of these treatments to be allowed, particularly MDA, MDMA for PTSD. You, as I understand it, as a member of the United States Marine Corps, suffered PTSD. You have gone through this therapy yourself, but you had to leave the country to, to do that. Uh, talk about your personal experience, what this did for you, how long you had to engage in this therapy, etc. So I found myself in a place with no purpose. Um, I knew that I wasn't okay because of the work that I did. So when I left the military, I was in the veteran nonprofit space and I was trying to find solutions for the what I call the black hole and trying to do everything and anything to keep veterans from falling into that black hole. Um, I fell into that black hole and because of the work I did, knew that I needed help. Um, I sought out talk therapy because I knew that I didn't want to go in the pharmaceutical route because I saw how the veterans I worked with responded and how unhappy they were with those. And so talk therapy helped me not feel so alone, but it didn't help me get to the root of what I was dealing with. Um, I think veterans do a really good job of saying they're okay and looking to the left and to the right. And my my brother on the right is missing two limbs. And my sister over here is dealing with, you know, really incredible post-traumatic stress. And I'm functioning. I have purposeful work. I'm okay. Um, all of that kind of came to a head and I wasn't okay. And at the same time that I started my talk therapy, I met a nonprofit called Heroic Hearts Project. They help veterans connect to psychedelic assisted therapy outside of the country where it's not illegal. Um, I personally had an experience with psilocybin mushrooms and that experience, it was a one-time high dose experience where 
almost overnight, I was able to shed 20 years of collected trauma and grief. Um, I had done a really good job of not experiencing my pain, not experiencing my grief, putting it aside so that I could continue working. And it all collected inside of me. And that experience with psilocybin, one, allowed me to give myself permission to heal and permission to accept that I had in fact endured a lot of trauma. And what it did after I was able to accept that and give myself love and empathy was actually process and feel and shed that trauma and grief. I have 30 seconds left. You said it happened almost overnight. Uh, has it lasted? It has. Um, and it wasn't just the one experience. It was the experience with the psilocybin in conjunction with talk therapy. And that is the magic combination. These aren't one and done magic pills, you have to do it in a safe container with help. We'll talk more about that because all of these th drugs we're talking about should be used or, or are advocated to be used in conjunction with talk therapy because it needs a guide to help you through it. We'll come back and talk about that and more when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about psychedelic drugs used in a clinical setting to address a host of issues, although many of these things are not happening yet because uh, the, simply the drugs are not available because they're not legal. Uh, Dr. Cynthia Kuhn is a uh, professor of pharmacology and cancer biology at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Uh, Robert McClure is associate professor and director of the UNC Interventional Psychiatry Service. Juliana Mercer is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and director of public policy for Healing Breakthrough, an organization that advocates for MDMA-assisted therapies for uh, veterans. And Daniel De La Cruz is a clinical social worker and co-founder of COHOBA, which uh, is an integrative healing center with licensed therapists who are being trained in their use of psychedelic uh, uh, drugs, although they're not available yet. Daniel, you too have had personal experience with these drugs. Is that, what, is, is that simply because you uh, wanted to understand what the experience was like for your, the people you work with, or because you have uh, underli had an underlying condition that you felt could be addressed by these? Yeah, for myself, it was definitely because I have an underlying condition. Um, I've been witness to and experienced a lot of violent trauma. I've witnessed um, gun violence. I also used to work as a mental health first responder. So um, I would show up at homes at three or four o'clock in the morning, sometimes to provide immediate grief therapy for a completed suicide. And some of those scenes that I had witnessed over my time as a first responder really stuck with me and it made it um, really difficult to sit with the flashbacks and the traumatic memories that would flood me at, at different moments. And um, my experiences with specifically with LSD and MDMA really um, were eye-opening and helped me move forward from those And where did you have to go I, to get these treatments? Um, I did them on my own. I mean, I had to seek it out um, through the recreational market and that's not something that I would condone, but you know, I was, I was okay. debilitated. I mean, my PTSD was making it incredibly difficult for me to, um, work and live. The, the military seems to be the tip of the spear on advancing this because of the crisis that people acknowledge on both sides of the political aisle in terms of the numbers of suicides that you alluded to, Juliana, that are happening among military veterans. I think it's 6,000, is it a year? 
uh, are losing their lives to suicide because people just can't deal with the trauma that they have witnessed and experienced in, in their military service. Uh, has that given the Veterans Administration some sort of urgency in pushing this? And is that urgency getting the attention of people who make the decisions? It is. Um, those of us that have been trying to find solutions for this veteran suicide epidemic have been doing it for two decades, and we've been not, unable to find anything that actually moves the needle in the right direction. Hence that six, over 6,000 a year since 2001. We're at over 140,000 veterans have lost their lives here on American soil to suicide. And that number hasn't changed. Um, with the promise that MDMA holds with that 71% efficacy and an 87% reduction in symptoms, there's hope finally, and there's an actual solution. So when I'm on the Hill talking to our legislators who they themselves have been trying to help find a solution to the veteran suicide epidemic, they find it really hard to say no uh, to supporting this. And I, the VA has been, um, there's been studies that have been happening in the VA. I believe the first one started in 2022. These have all been privately funded uh, up until recently. So uh, this year, I believe it was in January, the VA for the first time ever is going to start funding psychedelic research for psilocybin and MDMA. So the, the VA is putting skin in the game. And last year, they held a state-of-the-art conference on psychedelics specifically. So they've been they've been starting to do work towards moving, moving towards figuring out if these novel treatments do work in veterans and if they can roll this out as a treatment for veterans. I want to come back to a number you just threw out that uh, as a result of using MDMA-assisted therapy, 87% of those who participated experienced significant reduction in PTSD in their PTSD diagnostic score in just two months, 87%. How, how has that number arrived at, and, and how many people does that include, because I'm sure these are clinical trials, and how long does it last? So the clinical trials were through the FDA process, so the results that you're talking about are the final phase three numbers um, that were corroborated with the other studies, and as in terms of how long does this last, um, I personally know one of the very first trial participants, he has been PTSD free for over nine years. Um, in terms of how long does this last, we, because the studies are, you know, they've just been completed, we still don't know you know, the, that population, how long this is going to last. Given but what that, given what the Veterans Administration is experiencing, Dr. Kuhn, and, and, and what we're seeing elsewhere with some of these other therapies, why would you say no to this when it's administered by a licensed medical professional under their supervision? Why would you say no? I wouldn't. Under the criteria you give, I wanted to do a, sh a shout out from another perspective to the VA. I um, One of the reasons that the VA has been the tip of the spear has been they have a population um, that has more PTSD experience than almost any other in the country, and we have no effective pharmacotherapy for PTSD. Much of my it has just been a very difficult condition to treat, and they have a huge population of people 
who have a condition that's difficult to treat. I happen to be, you didn't know this, I happen to be on a VA study section and I have been overwhelmingly impressed with the great compassion of PTSD, I mean, of VA psychiatrists and their engagement in the research efforts here. And I just watched a webinar the other day in which they had VA, uh, top VA officials and top FDA officials discussing how to move this forward. So they are engaged from the top down and probably in part through the efforts of people like Juliana. Dr. McClure, according to Jennifer Mitchell, who's director of the UC San Francisco Institute for Trans Translational Neuroscience and who is the lead author of the Phase Three MDMA trial published in 2021, she says that when someone takes MDMA, quote, they're able to access trauma-related memories in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable or embarrassed. With traditional PTSD therapies, the patient can shut down during that therapy, but with MDMA, they don't. She says they really, quote, dive into the traumatic memory, process it, and release it. Why? Do we understand why? Um, it, it is clear that, that MDMA, you know, in association with psychotherapy um, is really a powerful, powerful treatment. Um, exactly how that happens with uh, in the brain, how that allows us to sort of process, uh, people to process that information isn't known completely. I mean, we know the receptors, it's systems that, that these drugs bind. Um, I think what's most important is that, uh, you know, it is very effective in treating PTSD. And although we don't exactly know how long it lasts, I mean, I think that there are folks like Juliana who've had long lasting positive effects, um, regardless of how long lasting they are, we, we need to, to move these forward and start treatment so we, so we can understand how to use them. Uh, the University of North Carolina School of Medicine is involved in a research project with the United States Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, uh, with the aim of developing new psychiatric medicines using psychedelics. Why are we working on developing, Dr. McClure, new psychiatric or psychedelic medicines when we already have four or five on the books that we know are effective in certain ways and we're not allowed to use them? Sure, that, that's a great question. I think it uh, it just uh, leads back to uh, a comment that Cynthia made that it is not clear whether you actually whether people actually need a psychedelic experience or psychedelic or dissociative side effects um, to get uh, effective relief from their symptoms, uh, and so there's a lot of interest and, and actually uh, in reality some pretty amazing research being done. Brian Roth and other pharmacologists around the world and around the country to, you know, basically synthesize and, and make um, drugs that are related uh, to the psychedelics but don't have psychedelic uh, side effects. Daniel, that, that's, that, that's the main uh, drive uh, behind that. Daniel, in North Carolina, House Bill 727 was filed in April of last year, April 2023. It was named the Breakthrough Therapies Research and Advisory Act. It would allocate $5 million in funding to medical or academic organizations in the state to test the impact of MDMA and psilocybin on treating mental health conditions. To the best of my knowledge, that bill was referred to committee 
in May of last year, and that is where often bills go to die. What do you know about the progress of that bill? And in your opinion, ideally, what would legislation allow for when it comes to these drugs? Yeah, as far as I understand, the the bill passed the health committee and has moved on to the appropriations committee um, and has, as you were saying, sat there since May. Um, there's still hope that that it can be moved forward. Um, I, I think the, the bill, we were one of the founding organizations of the NC Psychedelic Policy um, Commission and, and um, remain hopeful that we can get this bill passed so that we can continue to fund research. Um, I think the research has already spoken for itself, but um, more research can just continue to add more data and, and help gain legitimacy to these medicines. So the, the, as we have said, the, in the best scenario, best case scenario, these drugs are used uh, in uh, talk therapy settings. Um, uh, Fred Barrett, who is a neuroscientist at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, says that what often gets lost in the conversation about this new frontier in mental health care is therapy, the crucial agent of sustainable change in the process. So Dr. McClure, is that what really makes these uh, therapies work, some sort of guided tour through them with a professional? Um, yes, Mike, I think it is. I, I, when we started our study of uh, psilocybin treatment of a refractory major depressive disorder, it was very clear to me and, and to my colleagues that psychological support, at the very least, um, and at, at best, you know, therapy by a trained assisted therapist is, is a key part of these treatments. The, the medications are not going to work alone without um, without therapy. It, it's just a very very important part of of the treatment. What about potential side effects, Dr. Kuhn? Uh, we we know that uh, there were flashbacks to people experienced involuntarily and at in inopportune times when they experimented recreationally with LSD. Have any of those kinds of things cropped up? Are there lasting side effects to any of these drugs? The answer is we don't know yet. The clinicians who conduct these studies are very careful. And when you read the papers that they write, they they um, do reveal when patients sometimes have an uncomfortable experience. But the fact that they're using very small doses, especially compared to the doses of LSD that were used in the 60s, they're using small doses. And if anything bad happens, there's somebody there to help them process it. Sometimes they can give somebody anxiety-reducing medication if they really must. It has proven to be very rare in the published clinical trials, however. Nevertheless, the, you all everybody here has hit upon their affirmation about the value of doing this in a supervised setting with a therapist. I doubt these, at least these current drugs, are ever going to be drugs you're going to want to take home with a prescription bottle because there's just too many ways you could misuse it in a dangerous way. Um, but in terms of long-lasting negative effects of the way they are used clinically in research, um, I don't know of a lot. Maybe maybe Daniel does. Daniel, Not, Daniel I know you I, wanted I, to jump in here. Go ahead. Unmute yourself. Uh, Daniel, unmute yourself. Yeah, I just wanted to add too. When we're talking about the value of, of talk therapy, these medicines, especially the plant-based medicines, have been used in some indigenous communities for thousands of years. 
And in these communities, they weren't just used willy-nilly, they were used as part of religious ceremonies and guided, <laughs> guided ceremonies where a shaman would guide you through these experiences. So if we're drawing from that, from that history, I think that really highlights the importance of doing this with a guide. I have just. I, th a I agree. I always tell. Oh, go ahead. I always tell my students we are the first culture probably to use these very serious drugs recreationally. <laughs> okay, I, I've very few. Uh, got just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, are there can uh, these brain these drugs open your mind? They they rewire the brain in some way. Uh, since we don't clearly know everything about what's happening, can it rewire it, Dr. McClure, in a way that is unfortunate that we would regret having had this therapy? So far, the research and the clinical experiences, you know, of, of, of people who provide this therapy would suggest not, would suggest that they are safe and that they don't have long-lasting negative effects. And we have a question from one of our listeners on Twitter. What if someone has passed drug abuse but has been clean for over 30 years? Are they still able to use these kinds of drugs to uh, combat PTSD? I mean, what about that? Who should and who should not get this therapy? Are there rules regarding that? I'm not sure who to ask that question of. Go ahead, Most? Dr. McClure. Sure. Um, so that that's a good question. Um, when in our use of ketamine or esketamine and hail ketamine, um, you know we don't provide that treatment for people who are actively abusing substances or actively you know addicted to substances. We uh, will pro provide those kind of treatments for for people who have, who are actively working on their addiction and and uh, recognize it as a problem. And the reason we do that is because, you know, we wouldn't want to, um, uh, you know, have a patient with a, with a tendency to addiction to get addicted to the, the, the drug that we're trying to. Well, that's my to that's my I have 15 seconds. That's my next question. Can you become addicted to these therapies? Uh, uh, I think the, the, the research shows that the addiction potential for psychedelics um, is very low. Okay. Very low, except for have, the only, only trouble is ketamine. We have to leave it there. I'm sorry. Dr. Cynthia Kuhn was the last voice you heard with Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Robert McClure with UNC's Interventional Psychiatry Service. Juliana Mercer and Daniel De La Cruz also with us. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.